Okay, if people could take a seat, we'll go ahead and get started. Good morning, I'm Henry Jenkins. I'm the co-director of the Comparative Media Studies program, and I'm one of two hosts for today's, this weekend's event, along with Joshua Green, who is the research director of the Convergence Culture Consortium, which I'm going to say a little something about in just a minute. It's our, my pleasure to welcome you to MIT and welcome you to the Futures of Entertainment conference. Uh, I have to say we have been absolutely thrilled by the response the conference has gotten, both in terms of speakers' willingness to be here and for their companies to pay their way, and for, uh, for the audience uh, that's turned out. And I suspect it's a rainy morning, we're filling in slow, but I suspect by the, next, the end of the next session, we'll probably have a packed room here if pre-registration is any indication. And uh, it says something about the level of interest there is in the topics that we're exploring here today. So the way this is going to work, I'm going to give you some, set the scene for you a little bit and some opening remarks, suggest something of the big picture of the media landscape. Josh is going to do the same thing tomorrow in terms of some of the topics we're covering tomorrow. We're going to go then into uh, panel sessions. These sessions are long. Uh, many people have commented, well, they've rarely been to a conference where the sessions are as long as this. That's because we really want to drill down. We want to have a detailed conversation with our panelists, and we want you, the audience, to feel free to ask questions and participate as well. And we're doing this as a talk show format, so you're going to see very little outside of my uh, PowerPoint now. You're going to see relatively little PowerPoint during this whole presentation. We will have some demos scattered throughout. We'll have other opportunities to see what these people are working on. But we mostly want to really talk about some cutting-edge issues that are affecting the entertainment issue industries that are relevant to companies and relevant to consumers. And I think we have a nice mix of the, both of those here today. This event is primarily brought to you by the Convergence Culture Consortium. And we're about to, this is an MIT-based research initiative uh, we have five corporate partners now who have been firm supporters of the work that we're doing, and you'll be hearing from some of them throughout the conference. Uh, this, this, we are a research initiative that's really trying to map the kinds of changes we're talking about this weekend, and we provide our partners with a blog, with newsletters, with white paper research, with closed-door briefing sessions really to try, and, and we've learned as much from our partners as we, uh, as we teach them, I think, in this, this context. We're all learning together, but it's a moment where we're trying to bring together media companies, advertising companies, major brands for a conversation about some of these issues. And some of you are in, out there in companies that are not yet part of the consortium. We're not gonna pitch you hard this weekend, but just know that we are still interested in members for the consortium and we'd love to talk to you. Um, so. This image sort of is designed to represent what people have been calling Web 2.0. Uh, Newsweek says it's putting the we in the web. It is this move toward social networking, toward participatory culture, toward online communities as a driving force in the development and flow of content. It's sort of Web 2.0 is a word the industry is using more and more, and it covers a lot of what we're talking about here, but only inadequately. I read just last week in the newspaper, some of you saw it, that Web 2.0 is already over, and people are saying Web 3.0 uh, is the future. So I figured today we'll talk about Web 2.0, and tomorrow we'll talk about Web 3.0, and we'll make that transition together. Uh, now, my, my own 
Web 3.0, according to the journalist, is immersive worlds. And so, in fact, quite literally, the flow of this conference ends us up in the space they're now calling Web 3.0. When I look at this as someone who studied fan culture uh, for 20 plus years, I see Web 2.0 as fan culture without the stigma. It's, it's fan culture where people no longer are accused of living in their parents' basement. You know, it's a world, you know, because if I look at what people are calling Web 2.0, that it's social networks, that it's people creating their own content, sharing their content with each other, you know, that people are actively impassioned consumers of brands and entertainment properties, aren't we just talking about fandom? Aren't we just su suggesting that the web has made fan culture loom larger and larger in people's lives until our relationship to media, for more and more of us, is a kind of fan relationship? Now, it's not just fans, and we'll talk about anti-fans, anti-brand movements in a minute, but it's part of what's going on. Now, if we want to understand the heart of the changes in the media industry, we probably want to talk about this company a little bit, YouTube. YouTube is that meeting point where all of the different kinds of participatory culture that are representing the changing face of the entertainment center come together. It is where Yochi Binkler in The Wealth of Networks talks about a world where the amateur, the nonprofit, the governmental, the, the activist, the corporate media coexist. If there's any place on the web where that takes place, it's through YouTube. So we see here amateur-generated content from all kinds of communities, right? We see the kids in China lip-syncing to uh, the Backstreet Boys. We see Star Slash fans creating homoerotic videos. Uh, about their favorite television shows. We see gamers doing machinima mock-ups uh, and creating, this is an elaborate musical number created using Star Wars uh, galaxies uh, as, uh, as its base engine. We see brand enthusiasts, these are Walmart fans, literally dancing in the aisles of Walmart and recording it and putting it up on the web. We're simultaneously, it's not just bottom-up content, it is also the role of grassroots intermediaries filtering mass media content and putting things out there that escaped the notice of the mainstream media until the fans seized it and brought it forward. So most of us probably heard about Stephen Colbert at the Washington Press Club, not from C-SPAN, uh, but from uh, YouTube. And it's sort of interesting, C-SPAN immediately had it taken down after all the idea people should watch C-SPAN content was of deep concern to Brian Lamb and others at that company. But, uh, you know, I think, I think that... Uh, I think that it's very important, and the same might be true of Keith Overman's vis growing visibility at MSNBC as a liberal respondent to Fox News. A lot of us who didn't necessarily watch MSNBC saw things like his response to Rumsfeld uh, via YouTube. Same time, we're seeing groups, uh, OK Go being a good example, who are beginning to use YouTube to generate buzz and bands that are starting to do better publicity for themselves than their labels have been able to do and are sort of becoming part of this growing phenomenon. And we're seeing film companies uh, release their content, film and television companies, using YouTube strategically as part of their release of a film. And Borat released the first 10 minutes of its film via YouTube before it hit the theaters. And that's been credited with some of the initial first wave of success that film has enjoyed in the marketplace. And it's such a world where the top-down commercial content and bottom-up consumer content meets, there's constant ambiguity about what the status of any piece of content is. So the Lonely Girl 15 phenomenon is fascinating because it's passed itself up as grassroots content. It turned out to have been an art project, and it turns out the artists are represented by CAA. So as we found out more and more, we move up the pyramid in terms of the line between commercial and amateur, and I think that's part of 
the blurriness of lines, and, but the public's willingness to try to sort it out. I've compared this to the 19th century phenomenon of humbug, P.T. Barnum's stone uh, giants and uh, mermaids at a time when science was po a popular pursuit. People took pleasure in trying to figure out, is the mermaid real? What about the duckbill platypus? How do we sort those things out? And now in an information age, people are similarly sorting out the status of YouTube content in collective process, trying to understand what's going on. This is part of what I'm calling convergence. In my new book, Convergence Culture, really gets to the heart of that. Cartoon says, no, sir, I wasn't talking on my cell phone. I was watching a TV show on my iPod. Uh, and it says something about the popular version of convergence, which has to do with devices and black boxes and which entertainment will the, which black box will all the entertainment flow through. I want to argue, though, that convergence has to do with social and cultural processes. It has to do with a world where every image, every brand, every story, every sound will play itself out across the broadest possible range of media channels, and this will be shaped both top-down by decisions made in corporate boardrooms and bottom-up by decisions made in teenagers' bedrooms. And YouTube, again, is a kind of interesting illustration of that process at play. So it's a world where the, I, you know, the announcement that video, television is available on the video iPod, which is scarcely the best delivery system for television, but the excitement was a move toward rerun on demand. And it, the, the emergence of television content, it's multi-platform. Uh, we now have more than, last look at the Apple Store, now had more than 50 different networks and their content represented. So your relationship to television in the last year, realize it was only a year ago that this process started in terms of the video iPod, as far as the public's concerned, within the last year we've seen a dramatic shift in how we access content for television as a result of these convergence processes. We saw last summer many of the new fall shows debuted through digital channels before they reached network TV, and so Netflix was distributing some of the, the NBC shows this past summer to subscribers. Uh, there were many other platforms, legal and illegal, that you could get advanced looks at the fall shows. And it's interesting that maybe things sorted out even quicker than usual as a result of public awareness of shows in a different order than they've had before. Fans are similar using multi-platform processes. This is a site for Star Wars, Star Stargate SGI, uh, which organized, this is like three days into a fan-developed campaign that launched after the cancellation of that series on the Sci-Fi Network, an extraordinary array of different tactics that fans are involved with to put pressure back on the network and the production company to keep it on the air. Most interesting one to me is that they're thinking globally, that they created a global campaign overnight, responding to the fact that the show did well in other markets, but not particularly well anymore in the, in the United States market. And so they said, put pressure on your local networks. Why should they stop making the show that you want to show your viewers just because Americans are no longer watching? And it's a, n a new way of thinking about what a cancellation means in a global marketplace. Uh, it means a kind of growing convergence between different companies. This was an event Marvel did this summer, uh, the marriage of Black Panther and Storm, the wedding dress for which was designed by uh, a, a fashion designer who works for Guiding Light, which resulted in Guiding Light then having a special episode a few weeks ago featuring a new a fantasy character, Guiding Light, who now is finding her way back into Marvel Comics. So we're seeing... <laughs> this flow between different media producers occurring at a rapid rate. Now, those of you who know your history of comics know that this is scarcely new, that su the moment Superman debuted, you know, within the next two or three years, we would see the emergence of comic strips, of radio dramas, of animated cartoons from Max Fleischer, 
and of, of ser live action serials, all of which helped to shape the early history of Superman and his impact on our culture. So we're not saying this is a profoundly new phenomenon. What we're saying is the transmedia, the relations of stories across media, has accelerated for a variety of factors at the present time. And that's an important part of what we're here to talk about today. Uh, we're seeing that now embedded more and more decisively into television content. This is Hero, uh, who's become the most popular character on NBC's Heroes this season. In the show, he reads a comic book, Ninth Wonders, in which he finds out what's going to happen to him in the future. And this relates to the website, which also is producing comics and providing comic book images of the characters. So it's a powerful example of the kind of cross-branding we're talking about here. There's another good example. Here is a scene from uh, one of the soap operas, which offers uh, Oakdale Confidential as a book, which is a both fic in the fiction and a book available on, on uh, Amazon and elsewhere, and turned out to be a very successful seller uh, because of this cross-promotion. So that's point one about the current moment. Point two is we now, as we live in a network society, uh, we're seeing the, emerge the ability of communities to rapidly pool information. What in the, my book I call collective intelligence. These collective intelligence communities play ever more active role. The first image you saw that flashed by a little too quickly was Survivor. In, the, in my book, I talk about Survivor fans as aggressively seeking out information about what took place on that island before it's aired on the network. And the pictures there were pictures that appeared the summer of the set and location of the current Survivor. It appeared about two months before uh, the, the show hit the air, and they were able to discern a lot of information about the contest using it. This is lost, the lost experience, one of a number of alternate reality games that tap this collective intelligence of consumers and use it as a channel for branded activity and branded entertainment. In the book, I, I offer this distinction between cultural attractors, that are things that draw like-minded individuals together, and cultural activators, things that give them something to do. And a successful brand in this new environment both creates community opportunities and then creates activities that those communities engage in. And this is, of course, the chart from Lost that flashed on the screen in about a split second that was then freeze-framed by people, put out on the internet, has been elaborately digested, dissected, interpreted for the last, last nine months or so. It's a beautiful example of something that created a community and then gave them an activity that's embedded in the way entertainment operates. Another example that I talk about in the book, this is a a community-built chart of the organization of the Zion Resistance or Underground in the Matrix movies. Uh, bits of information scattered across three or four different movies, uh, three movies, four, 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 uh, three games now, comic books, anime, all put together to create this chart. Uh, that creates new opportunities for branding. As you said, you know, DC's done a very interesting job, I think, with Elseworlds and selling both mastery of the existing text and variation, difference. This is a Russian... This is from Red Sun, which is a graphic novel that uh, dealt with a, what would happen if Superman landed in Russia instead of the United States. And it now comes with its own Soviet version of Superman action figure, uh, which I'm a proud owner of. I'm, I <laughs> uh, this is an example of using social networks to achieve an expansion or give your community something to do. Veronica Mars now uses MySpace, and you can link to any of the characters as your friends and get regular updates and information. Uh, so beyond that, then, the change is shaped by this idea of a participatory culture, of, a, of a people taking media in their own hands and remaking it, and an ever more complex economy in which media products are sent out into the world, consumers take them up, transform them legally and illegally, and then that inspiration then bubbles back up to the top. So here we think I'm looking at Machinima, 
Uh, the red and the blue, red versus blue has been a major phenomenon in the gaming world. And we're seeing uh, MTV uh, music mods, we're seeing decisive battles, we're seeing advertisers begin to take the machinima aesthetic and pull it back into the commercial mainstream. It's a world where we all want to participate and immerse ourselves one way or another. This is a picture my student Ivan Asquith took at Comic-Con this year. Uh, but I love the image of people not only dressed in costume, but wanting to look at their own pictures on their cell phone cameras as sort of representing the world we're in. It's a world we want to participate in and we want to see ourselves participating in. Um, all kinds of tools are enabling people to transform the content of media. Someone has done Lost Park, all of the Lost characters as South Park characters. Uh, which sort of shows the visual or graphic dimensions of this. Revelations is a Star Wars digital film uh, that we used 40 people producing their own special effects, working in concert around the world to produce a film that on, on, a, on a visual level looks as good or better than anything Lucas has produced. If it wasn't for the acting, you couldn't tell them apart. And if George Lucas knew how to direct actors, that wouldn't be such a problem. <laughs> Uh, fan fiction is also clearly part of that process. And, you know, I wrote about fan fiction 15 years ago. Uh, now there's thousands and hundreds of thousands of stories and novels out there on the web from across hundreds of television shows where people are rewriting their own versions of these characters. New tool, no sooner does a new tool get put out than it's immediately put to these uses. This is Jack Tracker. This is someone using Google Maps to map the movement of Dra Jack, the character on 24, as he moves across the city. Uh, we're seeing pods, the, again, iPod comes out, and podcasting becomes a very strong part of fan culture, whether it's Harry Potter fans or comic fans. They're very much involved in using this platform to create a different kind of public voice for fan culture than we've seen before. Clearly, fans are taking certain media franchises in their own hands, and recreating them. Of course, the story this summer of Snakes on a Plane, uh, a franchise discovered by fans just from the title was released, built up on the internet, uh, fans literally writing dialogue that found its way back into the finished film and shaped the production campaign. Now, it's an interesting case because people sort of pumped up, what's the impact of this in the marketplace, and then trashed it again, saying, well, the internet clearly didn't open a movie. And by that criteria, it's pretty clear television can't open movies, because I could point to any number of movies last year that did badly that opened with extensive television-based campaigns. The model is wrong. We're using a broadcast model to assess what's essentially long-tail developments. And so the Snakes on a Plane is a, is a great example of a long-tail movie where the audience has gradually built it up, where DVD sales would be pretty spectacular, I think but its, it's full impact is going to unfold slowly over time. It's not based on a model of broadcast, fast opening, big box office. And I think we misunderstand what's going on here and we see it that way. Browncoats is another exemp interesting example. They're the fans of Serenity. Um, they tell us something about the contested nature of this space. Uh, several weeks ago, the studio sent out a, a, a legal document asking for money because one of the Browncoats produced a t-shirt with unauthorized reproduction of the images, the Browncoats in turn sent them an invoice for all of their services promoting the movie. <laughs> I think it's an interesting struggle over what creates value in the current landscape. This one shocked me when I saw it the other week. The Boy Scouts of America and, and are working with Jack Valenti's fine organization and are being given a, what seems to be an ideological indoctrination about copyright, which doesn't include any reference in the official documents to fair use. 
So those of us in the, in, uh, you know, who might think it's a good idea to educate young people about copyright probably think fair use ought to be part of that curriculum. And as someone who's an Eagle Scout, I know that, that the Boy Scouts are not allowed to take partisan positions while in uniform. So for me, I'm shocked that this, this button, which this badge, which represents one side of an ongoing legal struggle, is being sewn in the Scout uniforms across Los Angeles. I think it's a corruption of the Scout process and the Scout values. And so whatever else I feel about the ideological position taken, I think it's wrong for the Boy Scouts to align themselves with one or another side of what's likely to be the major legal battle of the 21st century, the right of the public to participate in their culture, and what the terms of those participations are are exactly what we're sorting through at the present time. As I said, not everyone's fans, and we'll see here here about the Bubble Project, which is one of a number of ad-busting, bottom-up sorts of activities, which are encouraging people to take media in their own hand and respond to claims made by advertisers. This is, this is a struggle over the meaning of media in our society. So sometimes these groups work in concert, sometimes they work in opposition, but I think it's very important to understand the complex politics. As we invite users in, we're going to see more and more complex relationships to them. It's global phenomenon, right? And it's a global phenomenon that's flowing back and forth around the world. These are some images of American fans engaged in cosplay, dressed up like characters from Japanese anime. And this is an image that was shot in Shibula Station in Tokyo of Japanese fans reenacting scenes from The Matrix Reloaded. Uh, essentially, they, they did smart mobbed and called everyone there to dress up like Agent Smith, and they staged scenes from the movie as part of creating public awareness of the film. Again, and here are some of the zines I bought in the comic shops in Tokyo when I was there a year, a year ago. These are their comic book manga adaptations of Lord of the Rings, which sell openly alongside commercial produced manga in the shops of Akihabara. Now, this in turn is creating a global culture which creates new markets. This is a film called Krish, created by a Bollywood film company using special effects companies in both North America and across Asia. It opened the exact same weekend as Superman and it was fairly competitive across the Asian market with Superman that weekend. Turns out the plush toys for the two films are made in exactly the same companies. Uh, so that we're seeing a global phenomenon around superheroes. I'm pretty sure that's why we have uh, the, the, the Indian character in Heroes, in, and we have a Japanese character in Heroes. They represent the two global markets that are most aggressively are competing in, with the superheroes in the United States. Uh, and in turn, we're seeing kind of transnational companies step into a place like that, building on the back of the global awareness created by these fan cultures. Uh, this is Virgin Comics, uh, which is owned, of course, by Virgin Airlines and Virgin Records. Uh, and it's bringing South Asian comic content to the North American marketplace. And it feeds on this kind of global consciousness that's emerged in a network society. Uh, and, and the current issue of Reason Magazine, I have a piece about Japanese anime fans and fan subbing, which makes the argument that the, the, the illegal import of anime early on is part of what paved the way and created the market for you know, Adult Swim, Cartoon Network, the other kinds of anime commercial stuff that's in the market today. It's not a simple, it's illegal or legal. It's about what's the relationship and what's the tactics by which fans and companies interact in this new landscape. And I close with this image from Doctor Who to sort of illustrate a process that seems to be taking place culturally. Doctor Who was off the air in the UK for almost a decade. It was kept alive by both sort of transmedia strategies, radio shows, novels, 
so forth, but also by fan activities. When it's come back on the air and come back very strong, it's largely by hiring former fans to be creative contributors to it. We're at the moment now where Star Trek is probably entering that same process. Star Trek's off the air, and now it's in the hands of digital filmmakers who are the next generation of Star Trek writers will probably come from fans right now who are producing and distributing digital movies online. So what we need to think about is fandom and, and similar grassroots communities, participatory culture, user-generated content is also a recruiting ground for future media professionals. And I think that's going to be part of the picture we pay attention to as we look toward the future. So I throw those out there just as some hopefully suggestive touch points, uh, references as we begin our conversation with our panelists. And if the panelists for the first panel will come up here, we'll get ourselves started here. But the, uh, but the goal is to, uh, to uh, just sort of set the stage for our discussion that follows. So thank you. <laughs>